Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. On this week's episode of The Drops Podcast, Benny Scarfo joins B and Tam to talk about the value of developing the right insights. Benny is the co-founder of Nonfiction Research, an insights strategy firm. Benny is the former head of strategy at Vice Media's digital agency, former head of strategy at Tenth Wave, inaugural board president at Brooklyn Poets. This is a two-part episode. Stay tuned for part two next week. A little connection here. Gunny, being from Brooklyn, now lives in Memphis. B Nashville, lives but in yes. Damn it. I mean, but it's close enough. I'm a Tennessee through and through. I'm Tennessee through and through, so... Yeah. Wait, what's your Memphis background? You, I thought I saw like Mississippi or something like that. So I was born in Mississippi. So my family historically is from Mississippi, but I went to middle school and high school in Memphis. And so I, when I go mm-hmm. home, we, we live in Memphis and then we drive, you know, all around Mississippi and Tennessee. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me give you a little pretext of how I reached out to Gunny. Gunny, Gunny is in the insights business. B and I being both product strategists or former product managers and B and I being both product strategists or former product managers. I always like to say, especially when I branched out on my own, I'm truly, really in the insights business. Every product we build is trading on an insight and you are either right or you are wrong. And if you don't do the work in the beginning, the market will tell you if you're wrong, but there are ways to figure out if you're wrong um, before you get to the market. And that's kind of what we preach, the experimentation, real true discovery. And so I wanted to bring Gunny on because Gunny is truly, purely in the insight space. That's all you do is develop insights. And so I thought that this would be a really good podcast just to talk about the value of that. A lot of organizations don't spend enough time developing an insight. Instead, they go on a hunch or they really believe in this kind of Game of Thrones, Spartacus type of, (laughs) if we say it loud enough and we get 300 behind us, that we can make it happen. And I just fundamentally don't believe that. As a matter of fact, one of my mottos is if you failed, it's because you made an assumption and you were wrong. Fundamentally. I love this. Take take me there. Why did you start your company, Nonfiction Research? I start off from there. Go ahead. Ben Zeidler, the other co-founder and I worked at the same agency years ago. And every time a new project would come in, he was head of research. I was head of strategy. You're always looking at other research to brush up on things before you would even do any of your research or strategy. So a new project would come in and we get all excited and we're like, oh, we're going to build something amazing and make something for the people. And then we'd come up with all of these deep questions and then we would collect all of the existing research and it would address like none of our questions. And it would just address a bunch of, I don't know, to us, boring, useless questions that seemed very professional, but uh, didn't really help us understand the people that we were trying to work with. So, I mean, I always remember there was a, <laughs> there was a, a, a chip brand uh, that gave us all this research and we were like, oh my gosh, like eating chips. It's so emotional. People do it like 
like what mood or when they're in a bad mood and like, why do people like certain types of chips and all this stuff? And we looked at their research and they had literally fielded a survey that asked like, to what extent is the crunchiness of a chip important to you? Like, what are you going to say? Like one, no, five, no, it's going to be like three or four. So then it came back and like the whole brief for the marketing campaign was like, make sure they know how crunchy this chip is. And that's, that's what happens when your insights look like that. And the agency we were working with at the time was working with an organization, like a nonprofit called the Specialty Food Association. So if you have ever bought a non-major brand of mustard or something like that, whatever, it probably come up through the Specialty Food Association. And there, there was research existing, not that they had done, but that another like large research company had done that asked people, why do you buy specialty foods rather than like big brand mainstream foods? That's an interesting question, right? But the choices on that survey were things like um, to keep at home, to have in case I have guests. And it's like, that's that's not it. I want to feel classier would have been an interesting option. Or I want to feel more unique as a person. So I don't have the same stone ground mustard that, you know, have or whatever. That's where you get into the complexity of what it means to be human and to want things. And so anyway, long story short, it was our disdain for existing research that led us to start exploring things in new ways. And so we were trying to like live alongside the people that we were studying. And we were trying to have conversations with people where they would often tell us things that they'd never even told their closest friend. And to us, that's what research ought to be like really getting to know people and understanding what things mean to them rather than this cold, abstract kind of stuff that we normally think of with. with. So one of the things that Tam and I, it just comes through over and over again in the podcast, which is, you know, we're super concerned about the the, the current state of product management because so much of it is this cold, very... when, When I first started being in product management, a lot of product management was... You don't have a tool that, that really measures X or Y or Z. And so you have a little bit of data over here, you have a little bit of data over there, and then the rest of it's your gut based on how you right. know your, <laughs> your customer. I'm kind of curious about, first, how did you go about starting to identify who the right customer was? Like, because that, that's a question. Like, how can you know a customer if you can't first understand who that person may be? Because a lot of people might say, well, this person went to my website and bought something. But chances are, that, that might not actually be your ideal customer. So, like, one, how do you identify that cohort. And then a follow-up to that question is, 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 is how do you go about figuring out how to ask good questions, right? Because mm. I think that's a fundamentally very difficult thing that even myself, sometimes I'm like, I think that was a dumb question I just asked. Let me go find a better one. Yeah. That, to do good people research, consumer research, whatever it is, something's got to be fixed. And then something else needs to be the thing that you go discover. Sometimes the audience is fixed, right? You're like, hey, we sell uh, cupcakes. So your audience is cupcake eaters, right? And that part's fixed. What's variable is you have to figure out why, why do people eat cupcakes? Why do they like cupcakes? Whatever it might be. Other times, the product or the service is fixed and you have to find the audience. That's usually a worse situation to be in. Because you're like, well, why did you make this thing to begin with? Didn't this come from some kind of human need or or desire? Desire. 
And so there are other times where the thing that you're trying to discover is like something else about the audience that you don't already know. So whenever we start a project, and honestly, people tell us a lot that nonfiction's work feels different than other research companies, that it, it, it hits in a different way. And we say that like 80 to 90% of that is because we start in a different place. It's not something that happens like three quarters of the way through a research project. It's we start with something all the time called a burning question. And that burning question is what is the spirit of the whole research project. Because once it starts, you do whatever it takes to answer that burning question about that audience. And we look for two qualities in a burning question. The first is, do we all agree that we don't know what the answer is today? It's amazing how much research goes about where people either think they know the answer or don't really care about the answer to the question that they're researching. They really care about some other question. But the second thing is, now that we all agree that we don't know the answer to this already, and it's something we need to go explore, if we were to know the answer, is it something that would change the business? And so, Tam, we were talking about like what is an insight a little bit in our last conversation. And to us, of all the definitions of that's the one that makes the most sense. Is it something you don't already know, but now that you know it, it changes how you would approach the, the organization in some way. Maybe it's the marketing, maybe it's the product, maybe it's the audience. But if it doesn't fulfill those two criteria, then what are you really doing in this research project? But when you start out the research project and you know that you're chasing after something that you don't already know, but that were you to know it, it could change the game for you in some way. You're just more likely to come back with something good in the research. B and I, we kind of text back and forth about things broadly. And then some of that make it into the podcast as a topic. One of the things we were talking about offhandedly, how the internet has allowed a lot of disparate ideas to really flourish. And I'm going to tie this back in. It's a little round the world, but I'm going to tie it back into how you identify cohorts. You do research development insight so that the company can benefit in some way. And I want to explore more about how you go ahead and do that. Is this in the goals of solving something or finding something to solve? When I do discovery, when I lead discovery or strategy to understand, there's usually some kind of connector. This group in this space, right? How does this group do this? And so there's usually, we kind of narrow it down. It's broad in the reach, meaning within the, those two connectors, how do SMBs grow their business? There can be a really wide range of questions. So we can develop all kinds of insights, but we're not just out there. I, at least in my work, don't go out there and say, I just want to learn about how SMBs go about their day right. on a day-to-day -day right, basis. Right. It's not that wide. We kind of narrow that right. in. When we talk about opportunities or designing strategies, it really does depend on who the client is because the way they phrase this discovery challenge can impact what you go discover. For example, think about Dollar Shave Club. The internet has allowed Dollar Shave Club practically a really dumb idea if you really think about it. Right? I'm going to get a bunch of men to subscribe to Blades on the internet. But if we were consultants and we went to say Walgreens and said, Walgreens, every time a customer comes in the door, why don't you instead present to them an offer to get Blades shipped to them? Walgreens from their position would be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, this is 
I want the customer to stay in my store, not to stay home. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like it would have never worked for them, right? That, that insight could have never been something that they would have benefited. But if you were Gillette, P&G, and you were asking the question, how do my male customers buy products? In that discovery, you would have discovered that there is an opportunity to ship a product to them. And then there would have been this whole idea of what does Dollar Shave Club look like in that iteration. So my question is around, when you define the problem or thing to go solve, how do you define like the angle or the perspective that you're taking? Or how wide or broad do you make that? Yeah, as narrow as possible. I know that sounds crazy. Yeah. But leave, and this means that a lot of projects aren't right for us, but we believe that defining the question as narrowly as possible actually enables you to go deeper with that audience on that topic, whatever that topic is. But it also counterintuitively usually leads you to discover other things about that audience and about that space, but you discover them by going deep onto one thing. And sometimes you end up actually realizing that you're asking the wrong question. That doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. And when it happens, you need to throw the first question out. So we worked on uh, a research study a couple of years ago, the Ad Council, which does fairly uh, impactful work in terms of uh, PSAs and that sort of thing. And that we were handed was something along the lines of like, it was about fatherhood and it was about like, could we get low involvement dads to want to spend more time with their families? Now, on the face of it, that might be a reasonable question, right? But lurking in there is an assumption. And the assumption is that the thing getting in between dads and spending more involved time with their families is a lack of desire. And uh, very quickly, when our researcher dove into that project, she came upon a million reasons why dads are not more involved with their families. And some of it is like life is multivariate, right? Like it's, there's never like one thing that explains everything. But what we saw again and again were stories of guys who wanted to be a lot more involved than they were, but there were obstacles. Sometimes the obstacles were their own addiction struggles. Sometimes the obstacles were a court system. Sometimes the obstacles were poor relationships with the mother of their children. Sometimes the obstacles were their own past failures and like feeling like a fuck up and then having to overcome that. And when you think about this topic, it's a heavy, really important topic. But I remember as part of that study, I spent time in Appalachia that uh, worked with men who were coming out of prison and they were about to, they were out of prison, but before they re-immersed in everyday life. And this organization was, they were living there and they were taking classes on job hunting, on fatherhood, on all of these things. And I met a guy who I will never forget. There were a, a ton of incredible people there and, and incredible stories. But one that I'll never forget was a guy who told me that uh, he was Muslim 
and his wife, his ex-wife was Christian and her new husband was Christian and the new family celebrated Christmas. But one year there were no gifts under the tree for the kids. And he was heartbroken by that. And so he went and bought that year and every subsequent year, bought Christmas gifts for the kids and wrote the new dad's name on them. And I was so struck by that. That's not a story of a guy who doesn't want to be involved with his family. That's a story of a guy who doesn't have the access that he wishes he had to his family. Now, that, that's not everybody's story. There are a million different stories and a million different reasons. But I tell you all of that to say that partway through that project, like very early on, our researcher, she realized, hey, the question is not how do we get men to want to be more involved with their families? The question is, how do we inspire guys to never give up? And the difference in those two questions is seismic. There's just something that I increasingly am thinking about, which is that there's two things that products really should do, right? One, they should meet your motive. There is some motive that, that inspires them to, to, to buy your product. But the second is, is that, that hope, like products that provide hope are the ones that are sticky, Right. Mm. They're the ones that like open up like worlds and centers and things like this. Your, your story reminds me of that. Right. It's like if you can ensure that person is still hopeful, that they're going to have this great relationship with their family um, down the line, that that will ultimately be the stickiest experience um, for those folks or for any type of industry. That was very interesting is that as, as about your focus on being very narrow. Um, one of the things I think I struggle with is that I'll go into a client situation and they're like, well, I have a billion dollar idea because it's going to apply to like all these hundred thousand different personalities. And I'm like, right. that's actually, that, that's not true because, you know, only it's percentage of those people are going to buy those products. And so I'm wondering if you could illuminate a little bit more about the, the importance of having that narrow kind of very specifically defined focus. It's huge to us. And we actually... This sounds obnoxious. I don't have a less obnoxious way of saying it, but we turn down a lot of work that doesn't have a specific enough question. And the reason why is because we know it's going to end up mediocre. It's guaranteed. If your question is, hey, we want to understand Gen Z, it's like Gen Z, it's tens of millions of people. <laughs> like, what, what, what are you studying? Or like, like we need to understand the African-American buyer, like what the, the African-American buy, what that's, there's, there's no, there, there, that, that's not a, that's not a thing. That's not a monolithic essentialist thing. Like, like that audience that you're describing, it doesn't, it doesn't describe a group of people who think the same way or buy the same way. And so the first thing B is when the audience is too broad, that's the first place to go south that you're describing, right? And we get that a lot. It's usually generational stuff. So we have to be like, no, that, that's not a thing. You know, let's, if you want to understand Gen Z vapors, that we can study. That is an audience. That is a group of people who share a certain behavior as well as a demographic affinity. But so that, that's the first one. Then the second one is you describe something where the activity is too vague. So maybe something like, I don't know, uh, home buyers. 
home buyers, they do share certain things. Like everyone starts like looking for homes and then they've got a list of things that are and are not acceptable. And then they have to make trade-offs. And then most people need to go get financing to buy a home. So that's a whole other experience. When the diversity of an audience or a behavior that you're studying or a product or whatever it is, dwarfs the sameness of the experience, you should not study that. You should get more specific. And then when you can do that, it's more likely to pay off with something that A, is new, uh, B, is helpful because you're building the helpfulness into the question itself. I'll give you an example of it. Like we've done a handful of projects with Disney and one of the projects that we did was around studying younger teachers. So Disney has something that now after our research and a rebranding is called Disney Imagination Campus. So teachers can bring their kids to Disney and they get a whole educational experience. It's incredible. Like they take them behind the scenes of Space Mountain and study the physics and there's all sorts of really cool stuff. It's a program that's been going on for a long time at Disney and has a lot of repeat customers. And anytime you have a successful program or business that's been going on for a while with a lot of repeat customers, the risk that you run is that there's a new generation of customers who don't think the same and maybe don't have the same values or whatever that might be. So our, our burning question for that study was around what do younger school teachers really want out of a field trip? And how could Disney design something that no one else could? That's a question you can study. Specific in the audience, young school teachers. There were some geographic constraints on there too. And it's not just... Tell us about young school teachers. No. What do they want out of field trips and what do they really want? So now we can go and we were collecting the forms that teachers would use to apply to a principal for a, a certain field trip. We were talking to principals. You can talk to kids. We were talking to field trip consultants. All of a sudden, with a question like that, the whole research study comes alive, but it only comes alive when it's specific enough that you start to want to immediately dive in. I love that you said that. This is what we call in design a design challenge. When it needs to be set up like that, who the audience is, what problem we're trying to solve for, and what the future state could potentially be. I love that. There was an economist that wrote, and I can't remember his name. Sorry, I'm so bad with names. Who said, there's no such thing as a commodity. And this is revolutionary at the time when we think about commodities, toothpicks, straws, that one is like the other. And he said, there's no such thing as a commodity. And you need to think about things like that because that's where differentiation is. And I see this a lot as B and I, both people who come from corporate and startup culture, you see these decks from both sides and they read the same, different language, yeah. but they read the same. This kind of monolithic view that this company is going to service the needs of all of one group. Right. Every time I see something like that, I say that is impossible. There is no company, there is no product that has all of anything. But this is still a bet that I have long running. I say <laughs> it as extreme as this. Find me a company that owns all of one group and I will bet whatever's in your bank account times 10. Right. I am this confident that it doesn't exist. Right. Go down the grocery aisle, any grocery aisle, and ask yourself why are there so many bottles of water? Beautiful. Water is a commodity, but 
how you can have an entire aisle full of different waters. Go down the dairy aisle. What is milk? Milk is not for everyone. There's all kinds of different kinds of milk. College is not for everyone. College is not even for all college students. That's why there's day school, night school, weekend, boot camps, online, all of these things. And so I get into that to go back to the question that B asked earlier and kind of transition into how do you ask better questions then? Somebody told me a story years ago about uh, Easter ham. And they're telling a story of like a young couple of a husband and wife and the wife was preparing the Easter ham and she was saying, okay, now I'm going to cut the end off of it. And then the husband is like, why are you cutting the end off the ham? And she, she said, well, that's how you prepare a ham. You cut the ends off. And he said that you don't need to cut the ends off of a ham in order to prepare it. She said, you don't know how to make a ham. I'm going to call my mother, calls her mother. Her mother says, that's how you make a ham. You cut the ends off of it. Husband says, "That's you don't need to cut the ends off of a ham. They call the grandmother. They said, isn't it true you need to cut the ends off of a ham to properly prepare a ham? And she says, no, I just always used to do that because I didn't have a big enough pan. So generations of ham preparation in this family have been happening for decades, cutting the end off of the ham when... It was just how the way things were done. Somebody saw it done that way when they were a kid and now they're cutting the end off of the ham. And when you think about the questions that we ask to, to us, like a lot of it is just cutting the ends off of hams. Like you, you ask these questions that you feel like you're supposed to ask, but in reality, there are better questions out there. And a lot of times, if you just took the same group of people and took them out of an office setting that same group of people over brunch or drinks or whatever it would be would actually come up with far more interesting questions to ask. I think that's one problem with asking questions. And the other one has to do with feeling that certain things are inappropriate to talk about in a workplace. And uh, the boundaries of what's acceptable to talk about in the workplace end up being the limits of what that company is able to achieve for its audience. And everything that nonfiction, every study that we do, we have a clause in our work agreement that basically says, we're going to co-create the burning question together. But once the burning question is done, we're going to bring you what the people really feel. And we're not going to edit it. We're not going to censor it. We're not going to take anything out that is uncomfortable. And if you want that, we're going to deliver it. If you don't want that, we might not be the uh, vendor for you. And things that really restricts what people ask in research or in insight hunting in general, it's just what they think they can say to their colleagues in a conference room. When in reality, most of us live private lives that are too vulnerable to share sometimes. Um, when you talk to people, when you think of all the fi finance products in the world, all of the financial services in the world, and you think of all the financial research that has ever occurred in the world, you think of a certain thing, but go talk to people about money. Go talk to people about crying because you didn't know where the next dollar was going to come from when you had a bill that was due. Go talk to people about 
how you angle yourself against an ATM to make sure that the people behind you don't see your account balance at the end of that transaction. Go talk to people about uh, having a shopping addiction. Like This is the reality. Go talk to people about going out to eat with friends and worrying if you're going to have enough to pay for your share of the check at the end and you order a salad when everyone else is ordering uh, three drinks. That's everyday people's experience with money. That Those questions ought to be in financial research, but they're often not because people feel uncomfortable talking about them in the office or questions that have to do with it's anything that people feel vulnerable about. It's sex, it's money, it's the, the things that we do to um, feel attractive to ourselves. <laughs> it's all of these things, those true elements of being a human being that don't feel corporate, that you can't imagine in a research report. That's the stuff that actually drives human meaning in our lives. And that's the stuff that ought to be the questions that we're asking. We ought to be creating in the research spaces safe enough for people to want to talk about them. And the research ought to create momentum within the organization or the company to, to come up with solutions to the vulnerable things that people have talked about. And I think from our perspective, like if you're not diving deep enough in the research and you're hunting for the insights where people are sharing things with you that feel like, wow, that was really personal. If you're not getting chills when you're doing the research, talking to people or crying, then you're not necessarily going far enough. Not every topic, not every project, but like it's a good indicator that you're coming up with good stuff. And then you need to hold that beating heart of the people that you've spent time with and walk it back into that organization, that company, that conference room. You need to advocate for that person, for their needs and their wants. And then like what we do isn't activism, you know, and it's not art. Like you need to find a bridge of how this company can profitably impact people's lives positively. But you need both of those things in order to like really create that bridge. And then when you when you land on that, it feels good. But that's the, uh, to us, like that's the discipline, you know, can you, can you get there? And are you asking the right questions? It may not be activism, but it is active listening. There's something underneath what you're saying here that I think is super important. Once you talk to these people, you start to find out that they're worried about going out to dinner and only being able to, you know, have the salad, whereas their friends can have, you know, the steak and a couple of drinks. Some people call that empathy. But I don't think that's necessarily empathy either, right? It's understanding that people's experiences can be divergent from you to the extreme. And the reason I think that's significant is when I first moved to Silicon Valley and started working at these large tech companies, I'm the kid from Mississippi. And so when they would talk about certain products that they would build, I was just like, I don't understand why you would build this product. And they're like, no, it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be, everyone's going to like it. I was like, no, where I'm from Mississippi, they have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, you need to figure out how to speak their language because it doesn't make sense to me 
why you think this product is going to be so pervasive. And so can you talk a little bit more about, and, and again, I hate those terms where it's like, well, put yourself in the shoes of your customer. And I, don't, I don't even necessarily think it's that. It's, you know, it's this like general idea of there are divergent experiences, lives, world, even within the United States, let alone if you have an international product and you want to appeal to people who have different languages, who have different cultural values. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Gunny, about, you know, what you found um, in terms of like the divergent human experience and how you kind of been cut through a little bit of that, like some of the strategies you've used so that you can get to those really great insights despite how divergent our experiences are. Yes, uh, you are spot on, as you know. Those divergent like interests, motivations, experiences, you see it all over the place, even in something as seemingly narrow as financial advisors. Talk more broadly about uh, American diversity in a moment, but let's just take this like super niche example of like financial advisors. We did research into financial advisors a few years ago. And one of the things that we saw was that about half of financial advisors saw themselves as uh, sort of like counselors for people financially. And what motivated them was the idea of helping people chart out their financial future to reach goals. What they hated was having to go drum up more business. They just, they hated the sales aspect of it. They, they're advisors, they're consultants, they are confidants. The other half of financial advisors, it wasn't quite the start, but I'm, I'm telling you, it was massive, massive groups saw themselves as entrepreneurs trying to grow a business. Now, yeah, they happened to uh, sell financial advisory services. Yeah, that's, that's the product. But they are entrepreneurs and they are going to grow this financial advisor business. Those are two wildly different motivations and mindsets. Like a lot of the first type of financial advisor who's just there to like work with people, they're introverts. They don't want to be at the, I don't know, the Rotary Club or whatever they're doing to like meet new people and drum up business. They hate being in a room full of strangers. They just want to work with their clients, you know, whereas the other folks, they love being out and rubbing elbows or whatever that expression is. But are they always looking to automate the part where you actually do the financial advising? You want to understand financial advisors. You cannot understand just one half of that audience. You have to understand both halves. Or you understand one half and you just serve that half. That's fine. But if you want to serve the whole audience and help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, you need to understand both sides. But that story I just told about financial advisors is true of, of everything. And one of the biggest reasons that we would say research isn't better is because people start a research study with a ton of biases or hunches, and then they just carry those all the way through the research project. And the same shit you started with is what you end with. And you are a an organization who is, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something absurd enough not to actually uh, alienate anyone. If, if you're like advocating for a certain type of paint to be put in homes or something like that, then yeah, the research study you commission is going to 
suggest that your kind of paint is the superior brand of paint for people or something like that. If you're not really trying to do research, if it's all a ruse, then, you know, have at it. But if you're really looking to study and understand people and come back with real findings, you cannot avoid addressing the biases in the work. And so there are a handful of ways that you have to do that, but you can't not do them. I think you're saying a couple of things in, in all of this is, two, there's a bias on the part of the business. Let's say the, the, the client is a business that wants to do something. They are obviously already in a space. So go back to that Walgreens example. Walgreens is in the business of being physical. Yeah. They are not incentivized to see an opportunity on the internet unless they're forced to, right? But I also think the other thing you're also drawing out is skill set. At least in my experience, when we come into this discovery, especially in a case where a product already exists, there's confirmation bias there embedded because you're only going to do research that reinforces the idea that your product should exist. And you don't make room for the idea that your product should not exist. And so this actually just happened recently. We're asked to do discovery strategy for a product that does exist, but focusing on this particular clientele that it, it serves and what their digital habits are in, during this time. So a little bit of that job's to be done. How do you behave in this space, right? These are the two connectors. And in my practice, I would remove the solution from this discovery. Let's pretend your solution doesn't exist because if it doesn't surface naturally from the customer, that's data. If it surfaces naturally from the customer, that's also data. Here's one of the questions that came to my review. Have you ever heard of insert app here? Yes or no. Second question. If you haven't heard of it, would you download it? Pause for a second. What reasonable belief do you have that someone only having heard of your app 30 seconds ago would truthfully answer yes? Beautiful. Beautiful. Why are we here? Right. This is two things. Your bias is here. You're a product manager. Job is to build this product. You don't want to hear the answer that your app is undesirable. The other thing is this is kind of a skill set. It's talking to someone. You know, journalism has kind of taken a, a, a bad dive for, unfortunately. Um, but I feel like journalists are the best at discovering. They're just here to find the truth. They have no inherent bias in what the answer is. And I feel like that's probably the gap in corporate. This just a skill of being able to ask questions that are without bias. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, brilliant. I mean, uh, being able to start all the way at the top with no assumptions, even the assumption that your product should exist, I think is amazing. Yeah. That's a, just a great starting place, uh, period. There's a lot of inspiration we can take from journalists as well as like detectives and investigators or, or even I think politicians have someone who's supposed to like dig up their like dirty past. Um, ops research. Opposition research. Right. But, but so that you can like be prepared for things in some ways, as, as crazy as this sounds, because I detest a lot of that kind of work, but that's maybe the healthiest attitude in some ways for research, which is like, you have to discover your own dirty truth <laughs> is the best way I can put it uh, for your product, for your business, so that you can see things as they are. There's a book from uh, Robert Greene and 50 Cent, who uh, I can't remember what it's called, like the 50th Law of Power. One of the chapter names is like 
something along the lines of there is strategic advantage to just being able to see things as they really are. And that that hit me really hard. I, I think that's right. In fact, our patron saint in some ways is someone called Nellie Bly. I don't know if you know who Nellie Bly is. She was around in probably the 1880s or something like that. And uh, it was at a time when women really weren't supposed to be newspaper reporters or journalists. And she was a trail. She essentially invented investigative journalism in its modern incarnation. And she had this hunch that people inside mental health institutions were being mistreated terribly. So she went to the mental health institutions and said, hey, are you uh, mistreating the, the patients? And they're like, no, no, we're not mistreating the patients. She's like, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere. So I, I need to understand what's really going on. So she studied how doctors diagnose mental illness circa 1880 or whatever it was, and then practiced uh, going through an interview as a patient and went to whatever the 1880s equivalent of a bodega on the Lower East Side of New York was. And was like, I'm crazy. And they called the police, they called the doctors, they came, they evaluated her and they committed her. She spent 10 days in a mental health institution in New York and she got the real story. She got to see exactly what was going on. She experienced it herself. And her editor pulled her out 10 days later and she wrote a series of articles and published work that changed the industry forever. Uh, if that's not a great example of what research should look like. I don't know what it is. She didn't call it research. She was a journalist. That's what she thought of. It was even before people knew what an investigative journalist really was. But there's something in that spirit of Nellie Bly where she wanted to know an answer and she dove in and did whatever it took to immerse herself in the reality that people were living. And it was able to come back and then speak to the institution. There's something in that that is to us, the, the most inspiring thing. And like, wherever you see that, whether it's detective work or journalism or science or whatever, a parent trying to get to the bottom of uh, what happened to that candy, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, like it's that spirit in which you are like loving people and studying people. The, the need to know why. That's what it is. You need That's to it. know why. You have to have that kind of a spirit. It's about discovery. I like analogies. This is a lot like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to see those commercials of these guys with the metal detectors on the beach. And I thought that's what retirement was. You get a metal detector, you go on the beach every day, you try to find where the gold was. And this is what, to me, what discovery is like. You're going to go out with your metal detector and you're going to go where the beeping is. But if you're an organization that has this hypothesis, you're so deeply rooted in it. You just want to dig where there's no beeping. Like you just want to keep digging. Dig all you want. There's nothing but sand. I'm going where the beeping is. Terminology I, I usually use is um to be an archaeologist. So I ask my team to be an archaeology archaeologist with me. Then we have to dig until we get to the truth and then we have to report the truth. So the journalism, the you know, go where the beeping is totally makes sense to me. But one of the things I'm kind of curious about, because, you know, we said we're saying you have to do this. But the thing is, is some people don't have that innate thought process. Right. They don't they're not those people who are curious in the same way that perhaps the three of us are curious. And so I guess, you know, Ghani, what I'm asking is, like, how can you develop this? Like, how can you develop a Like, if you don't have this innate in your spirit, I'm going to go excavate so I can get to the truth. What are some things that you think you have to do to start to develop that acumen so you can be someone who can get these insights? 
Yeah, B, I don't know if you I don't know if you can develop it, but I know that what you can do is uh and it's okay. Not everyone's wired to go be Nelly Bly, you know, and, and that's okay. But I think what you can do that you're getting at is you can care about the outcomes, right? So maybe you're not uh, that interested in spending three weeks like studying uh, your audience. You're just interested in the success of the product. Okay. Get someone else to go study the audience for three weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. But I think the connection that needs to happen that you're getting at that I think is really smart is you need to associate those findings of understanding your audience with the success of whatever it is you're trying to do. And whether that's purely financial, whether that's because you want to see this product or invention flourish, or if it's something deeper like wanting to uh, help your audience feel heard and understood, which I actually think is like um, one of the most important things about doing insight work just on a human level. Forget about the business part, but just on a human level. Um, that's maybe that's enough. <laughs> it's just like if, if, if you're not wired to think that way, just understand that, the success of this thing that you're doing is contingent upon you understanding the people for whom you're doing it. And if you can understand that, at least you'll include the insight hunting in your process, maybe. Stay tuned for part two of The Drops with Gunny Scarfo next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to The Drops podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are The Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast.